Welcome to Leading for a Legacy. I'm your host, Meredith Schweitzer. In this show, we ask, what makes a cultural nonprofit leader whose staff, board, and the community you serve actually want to follow? Join me as I unpack the leadership styles of some of the most influential museum directors and cultural sector nonprofit leaders across the nation, all to try to understand what it means to lead with your legacy in mind. everyone. Welcome back if you've listened to our first couple of episodes. And if you're new, welcome to the show. Well, today we're talking to Nat Shidley, who is the head of something called Revolutionary Spaces. It's a really interesting model that just this year had a merger between two historic sites. So we talk about how that merger functioned and kind of what it looks like to work with two separate boards and bring those two boards together and the staffs that go along with the two spaces. Hopefully you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Nat Shidley, thanks for being on Leading for a Legacy. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're recording the week after the election, actually only a few days after the election. So our listeners are listening to this knowing things that you and I do not yet know. But I think the timing is interesting because of the work that you all do at Revolutionary Spaces. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing where this conversation takes us. Let's see. I'm going to give a little timeline here. And April of 2017, you became the executive director of the Bostonian Society, but you'd been there since 2011 as the director of public history. And then if I have this right, this January, so 2020, the society merged with the Old South Association and created Revolutionary Spaces. That's right. You got the timeline correct. Yay. (laughs) So, (laughs) So introduce us to Revolutionary Spaces. Tell us a little bit about what it means to have combined the work that's being done between the Old State House and the Old South Meeting House, and just give an overview for our listeners about um, the organization more generally. Sure. Revolutionary Spaces is a brand new cultural organization in Boston, but it's formed through two of Boston's oldest, most established historic and preservation organizations. So Old South Association was formed in the 1870s to make sure that Old South Meeting House was preserved. Old South Meeting House is one of the stops on Boston's Freedom Trail. It's best known as the place where the meeting that became the Boston Tea Party began, but it was an important gathering place for popular politics of all kinds in Boston during the revolutionary period and for Bostonians afterwards. The Bostonian Society was formed in 1881 to make sure that the old state house wasn't torn down. The old state house, which was known as the town house in Boston during the revolutionary period, was the seat of government for the province of Massachusetts. And so it was one of the main stages on which the formal politics of the revolution unfolded. And both organizations uh, you know, existed for quite a long time operating their sites, which are just two blocks away from each other. Um, And Revolutionary Spaces is an organization that's built on the notion that the stories that live in those two buildings are precious resources and that they've been underutilized resources for civic life in Boston and in the country. The idea is really that the story is bigger than either of the sites is capable of telling itself because it's the story of the tension between those who represent us and the people out of doors who are seeking to have their voices heard. So bringing both of the sites together in a common visitor experience offers us an opportunity to really create a cultural resource unlike any other, where we can bring people together in the places where 
our nation's most enduring questions were born, not just to learn about the birth of those questions, but to continue the work of grappling with them today. I feel like moving through this really difficult passage that our country has been moving through in just this year alone, but obviously the culmination of a long arc of conversation, dialogue, and argument has been an affirmation of the importance of the work. Um, the questions that were born in our sites are are deeply resonant right now, right? Who Whose voice matters? Who speaks for me? How can my voice be heard? What's my recourse if I'm silenced? But I think really at the center of it all is this idea of we the people, which is a phrase that we find in our founding documents and that is, of course, incredibly powerful in the revolutionary moment. But it's not defined in perpetuity, right? The revolutionary generation argued over the meaning of we, and it's been for every successive generation of Americans to add our own voices to that argument. And that's really, right, I mean, that's the question that we're arguing over in every neighborhood in Boston and every town across the country right now. So our idea is that our work is just as much about today as it is about the past. Our mission statement says that we bring people together to explore the work of creating and sustaining a free society. And it's really the, the idea is to use the buildings as an enduring source of inspiration for all who believe in the power of people to govern themselves. I love this idea of using the buildings as conduits to understand the people who have passed through or are continuing to pass through the physical spaces. I mean, think of the buildings as like time travel machines, right? So we know at like an intellectual level that the work that we're doing today to argue over these questions is important. But we don't always really live and breathe the notion that it's part of an intergenerational struggle and that we are ourselves the beneficiaries of previous moments in that struggle. But think of the work of engaging in this conversation as the deep current that is at the center of American thought and life over 250 years and the opportunity to stand in a place where you can almost hear the echoes of earlier generations of people who sacrificed on the behalf of the experiment in, in self-government, it is inspiring in a way that's sometimes really hard to pin down, but you feel transported. And it's not as though what we want to do is just gather people in these spaces to talk about history. We want them to be in these historic spaces where the importance of the work of arguing over these issues today is palpable. Mm. And I'm curious about before the merger, were the two buildings and the two staffs and the two teams, were they approaching this sort of this shared story drastically differently or were there similarities? No, I think the organizations and the staffs working across the two sites were quite aligned in seeing mm. that this was in some way the larger story. And I think it's only because of that that the merger was able to move forward because the question really was, would we be better able to deliver on this by being together? Could we tell a more right. powerful story? Could we connect that story to the present in ways that feel authentically relevant to a diverse audience in ways that we wouldn't separately? And I think the answer to that was a resounding yes as we began to dig into it. And I think it was it was visible to everybody. And I think we also discovered as we went through the conversation an even more compelling understanding of what we might be able to achieve than we had known going in. Um, so we certainly learned through the dialogue in ways that would have enriched the work if we'd continued separately. 
Let's get into into that dialogue, actually, of how, as, as someone who had been in the role of the director for just a few years, but had been with the organization itself quite a long time, how you talked to the two separate boards and how you worked through that narrative of we're going to be stronger together, we're going to tell this story better together. Like, what did that look like when that idea kind of came to the two boards? It's a great question, Meredith, and it's it wasn't easy. I think it's helpful for people if they aren't familiar with the Freedom Trail ecosystem in Boston to just understand that there are multiple private nonprofits operating a whole constellation of sites in downtown Boston, all of whom work in close partnership with each other. Um, and even as we work in close partnership, there are also very real structural constraints in the system. We are structurally competitors with one another. Um, sure. So we partner, but we also recognize that we're seeking to attract the same eyeballs and seeking to cultivate the same donors. And, and that always makes it complicated. So to broach the conversation about could we possibly join forces and would that be good for the public meant bumping up against the sort of learned knowledge of, well, yes, this conversation could make sense, but it also could be that you may be thinking something that I'm not quite getting. And am I sure that I'm seeing the whole, like, it just was hard to get out the us versus them frame and find a we frame for the conversation. And so mm. I think it was important to establish a phased conversation where the goal of the first round of conversation was to ask ourselves not whether a merger made sense, but whether there was enough potential in the conversation to give it more thought and effort, right? So we we tried by doing that to decrease the stakes, to allow us to have a little bit of space to think together without worrying about where it might all lead. And what do, you, what do you mean by that? So we initially had a conversation among the board chairs and leadership across the two sites about, is this something we want to broach with the full boards? When we agreed that that was the case, we went to the boards and asked for permission to spend three months on a study process to really address the question of whether we would be stronger together and whether there was enough reason to give more effort and thought to it. So mm. um, that gave us a short run. And what we did in that period of time, we tried very hard to make the conversation steer away from who is this going to be better for or why are you trying to go down this road and really put the focus on the public and the mission, right? So the question that framed the conversation, I think quite appropriately for those of us who work in the nonprofit sector was, who are we trying to serve and how can we best serve them? And can we serve them better by being part of one larger organization operating these two sites in a coordinated, coordinated way. That focus, which I think it was important to keep reasserting because you get lost in the nuances of the conversation, but I think framed in that way, the case for the value of combining, we didn't over-engineer what the outcome would be. You know, we didn't say this is pointed toward a merger. Which, what, what could a combination look like was one of the questions, but framed in that way, it was possible to have a more constructive conversation. and. That conversation generated its own excitement and enthusiasm because people could begin to see begin to see the possibilities. Yeah, it's almost like you're opening 
you're just opening a space for imagination. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that that's, that's an important word in this context, because I think we have to be able to envision something other than what we know. And we have to envision it with enough detail that we can really feel it. I mean, obviously, you worked really closely with your own board, right? So, but, but how much had you worked with the other board? I had not worked with the other board. And so I think critical to having a successful engagement was having really strong board leadership across the two sites. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think both organizations happened to be at a moment in their own arcs where they were thinking in foundational ways about the organization's purpose. So we had an opportune moment to have a conversation that interrogated that purpose for both organizations at a fundamental level. I, I would say, Meredith, that that it was important as we went into the second phase of the conversation. So after we after we went through the first sort of three month study period and and the boards agreed, you know, we're actually pretty excited about this. We'd like to pursue it further. It was really important at that stage to give every single board member we could a hands on role in solving the, a set of questions and addressing a set of questions and coming back with some ideas. Right? It was a in some ways a painful process just because of how complex it was, but we created nine working groups on different pieces of the merger question Mm -hmm. that were populated by board members and key staff leaders from both organizations so that they could work in a cross-organizational way to begin to put flesh on what a vision for a merged organization could be. And I think that generated its own momentum and excitement, right? It gave people a space in which to puzzle over the problem and get excited about it. I think it really, we generated momentum as we went. What were the nine uh, areas? There was one that was really about a strategic framework. We didn't want to go through a strategic planning process, but that one was really charged with, well, what would the mission of a combined organization be and what would its unique value proposition be and how would we position that? We had one that was on the finances that was really trying to test what a sort of pro forma budget for a combined organization might look like and was asked to explore, you know, whether there were um, efficiencies or opportunities that were important. We had one that was charged with thinking about governance and like, how would you, how would you shape the board of the new organization? We had one that was charged with thinking about fundraising, one that was charged with stakeholder testing, because of course, both organizations had key strategic relationships, and we had to make sure that we weren't going to damage those by pursuing the idea of a merger. So, you know, there were a lot of different threads. And I think at the level of staff leadership, my role um, and my partner, our executive vice president of museum experience, Anne Engel, who was really riding herd on this process, the challenge was just keeping track of it all and keeping it moving forward because it was an awful lot of, of dialogue to corral in a short period of time. Yeah. Well, I I love this idea, though, of it's almost like you're taking the idea of board committees and flipping it in a way to to make it so that both sides have a space 
in like in what would traditionally kind of be like a committee, but it kind of isn't giving it that language feels a little different than than that. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that often board committees, they can be fantastic, but often standing committees in particular, they sort of have a steady state that they assume. Um, right. And it's not always clear exactly what they're producing. And they don't always generate the kind of engagement that one might hope. In this case, it was more like a whole series of task forces, right? There was a limited series of meetings, sort of three meetings around a very specific problem with the charge to come up with a creative solution to it and bring it back and make a case for it. You know, that's an exciting thing to do. And I think at a certain point, most of us who are involved in the conversation realize we were also working on something really novel. I mean, there really hasn't been a merger on the Freedom Trail and we could see the opportunity. We were also excited about being part of this exploratory work. So, but yes, I mean, those task forces or working groups really had their own gravitational force. Was there something that really surprised you that came out of maybe the strategic uh, group or the finance group? So I can answer that at two levels. One, I can say that there were findings that were surprising, or at least that hadn't been my expectation going in. And I think that also it's possible to say that the sort of just the character of the conversations themselves surprised me. So what surprised me at the level of findings, at the top line of efficiencies, right? Like are we going to be more efficient by being together? Which it wasn't the driving question in the conversation. The driving question in the conversation was all around mission, but we wanted to know whether would we be a more efficient organization? Could we do more? Um, often that conversation in mergers resolves to are there redundancies and can we eliminate cost by removing the redundancies? And that was totally not the outcome here. In this case, the case for the power of a combined organization at the level of efficiencies was that two small nonprofits each had to make really painful choices about what to do without on their staffs, right? Do I want an events person or a development person? Do I want somebody who can do marketing or another person to do programming? And both organizations had made really hard choices that made it impossible for them to maximize the opportunities that they faced in the environment and with the buildings and the other resources that we had. But instead of having made the same choices, the two organizations that had almost made exactly opposed choices. So like the Bostonian Society had invested in the fundraising operation, but didn't have enough staff to run an events business. Whereas Old South Association had a dynamic events business, but they didn't really have anybody doing fundraising. And across the entire organization, it added up in the same way where it was like we were almost purpose built to be put together. Uh And so we came to understand was that let's have the proposition going in be, we're not going to let a single staff member go as a result of the merger. We're going to bring everybody forward, but instead of having two small staffs, we're going to have one much larger staff. And now we have expertise in all those areas where we didn't have it before. And suddenly, like, now you can have an events business that spans both sites. Now you can Mm -hmm. have fundraising with a stronger fundraising team and a better value proposition. Now we have a facilities person to actually care for both sites. It's, you know, it was fantastic in that way. And wow, we could really maximize the opportunity out there and be a more dynamic organization. So that was a pretty surprising finding and a really compelling outcome to that part of the study. And do you feel like a lot of the energy 
comes from the fact that you started going from the board to the staff rather than the staff bringing an idea to a board? I mean, I'm interested in that, in the direction of the ideas. Yeah. So I think that's, it's a really complex problem. I've thought a lot about this. So a merger conversation is a uniquely challenging one to, to navigate from the perspective of staff members, because it's so clearly living at the level of board responsibility, right? I mean, it's an existential question for an organization. I saw my role as empowering the board to make a good decision and or empowering both boards really to make a good decision in this case. And so, you know, when I thought about how to engage the staff in that conversation, I think it was really important to not overpromise to them that they really had a deliberative voice in the outcome. So it wouldn't feel right and it wouldn't have been a good choice to go to the staff and say, we're definitely not proceeding with this merger if you don't think it's a good idea. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. Because ultimately, if the board thought it was a good idea, while the board was going to be receptive to staff input, it was a decision that was living at the board level. So I think it was really important to me to make sure the staff understood where they fit into the process. I made a commitment to them to be totally transparent about the conversation. So there's not, there were not secret conversations happening over on the side that everybody was fretting about. And I think I and, and all the board members who were involved in the process and staff leadership who were directly involved in the process worked hard to engage the staff to be part of the visioning. So for example, the uh, strategic framework working group, which was really about the genesis of the mission for the organization, that was staff and, and board were equal partners in that work. And in that way, it was possible to use the work of imagining to warm the staff to the possibility. You know, I think it's also really important to understand when leading through a change process, like as fundamental as this, that it's hard, change is hard for anybody, but in the context of the life of an organization like ours, it's harder for staff. The board members are volunteers and they have fiduciary responsibility, but they're not living and breathing the implications of this decision on a nine to five basis every day. And so the stakes just feel so high for staff who are deeply committed to the mission and and who are giving of themselves for the organization because they care about its work. And so it's, I think just the anxiety level about fundamental change is harder for staff members to ma- to manage. And I, I tried to ask myself as often as I could how I could help people to understand the change process, how I could help them to understand where they fit into the change process, where they did have a voice and where they didn't have a voice, and tried to be as responsive to questions and concerns as I could be. Yeah, a lot of this it sounds like boils down to just like being the the in the role of listener for both sides, from staff and from board to sort of be this conduit for those two. You know, I think it, in some ways looking at it captures my understanding of what leadership is really about in a nonprofit setting, because leadership in a nonprofit setting is not, it's not managing, 
right? It's not directing people's activities. It's inspiring. It's developing a common understanding of who we are and where we're trying to go. And it's about constantly reasserting the importance of the vision in ways that inspire people to want to give to it mm-hmm. in all the ways that people give as staff members, as volunteers, as donors. And, and how do you generate that? It can only be done in a collaborative way. I mean, I think the role of leadership is partly to shape the vision. And um, I think one of the lessons that comes out of really great museum and public history education is that, you know, it works best when we're inviting people to participate with us in making meaning. And we're not just telling them what it adds up to, because that makes people own the content and own the the whole experience of it and internalize it in a different way. And I think it's the same thing with a vision, like the vision that emerged for this merger. We wouldn't have gotten there if staff leadership had sat over here and said, look, we've got a perfect vision for this merger and we can intellectually explain the whole thing to you and let's go get it. And staff wouldn't have liked that and the board wouldn't have liked it and nobody would have internalized it. So you develop a more powerful method of moving forward if you open it up and say, you know, this is our vision. It's not my vision. I've got a starting place for you and I've got a set of questions I want us to grapple with, but let's make this better by doing it together. And in that sense, staff had as much of a voice as the the board members in the process, right? Contributing their creativity, their thought. And I hope that the process of engaging with it felt as inspiring as it was for the board members. Well, I love this idea that as the leader, your sort of role in it, like you were saying earlier, is empowering or inspiring. So it's sort of like giving the board the space to come to a, a collective decision that that makes sense and but in keeping that around this kind of greater vision, it feels like that's such an interesting takeaway to think of yourself more in the role of empowering than of guiding. Yeah, it's been an important part for me of coming to understand how the role that I'm in now differs from the role that I may have had as the head of a department, for example. Right. Um, I just want to admit that like, I have preferences and I might want the outcome to be A instead of B. And so for it to be authentic and a truly collaborative process, you have to open up the possibility that you may not know the best outcome and that other people may have really great inputs into it. And that by sharing some of the responsibility for figuring it out, you may get to a better outcome than you might have anticipated. Um, But you do give up some control. And I think a really important lesson in leadership is you can't control everything. If the job is to empower and inspire it's a pretty exciting job. As you're talking about this, it's it's making me think about all of this for you is happening literally in the months leading up to another huge change leading up to the pandemic, basically upending the world of cultural nonprofits. And so you've like gotten through working with both boards. Both boards are on board. You've gone through the process of bringing the staff you know, into the conversation. The staff's on board. You guys have kind of gone through the logistics. January happens. You announce that, that, um, that this merger is happening. And Boom, February, March happen, and both spaces, I assume, you know, were ordered to close because of the pandemic. I think now you all are partially reopened. But in the context of kind of learning to lead, how did that, that 
giant shift coming off of a giant shift. Just talk me, talk to me about that. Boy, I tell you, when you plan the launch of a new organization, you definitely do not put on the list like, and let's do it in a year when there's going to be a massive pandemic that forces everybody to stay home. So um, yeah, it definitely has been challenging. Our sites were really central to the history of the Boston Massacre. The massacre happened right outside the old state house and then was remembered year after year in a formal oration that was given at Old South Meeting House. So this year was the 250th anniversary of the Boston Massacre, and we had keyed the rollout of our organization's mission and the nature of the programming, which is really about trying to engage the whole population of Boston in feeling a sense of ownership around the history and the ongoing argument about we the people like we keyed it all around the massacre and memory and the role of Crispus Attucks in the center of that memory as a touchstone for our nation's ongoing conversation about racial justice we on March 5th which was the actual day of date of the massacre anniversary we had a huge launch event um, that was keynoted by you know Governor Charlie Baker and Mayor Marty Walsh and Tanisha Sullivan, the president of the NAACP chapter here in Boston, and a bunch of others. And it was a really inspiring event. And then seven days later, we were closed. And <laughs> it was a little bit crushing. And I think, you know, the running joke with our staff has been that in the process of our strategic conversations and the merger conversations, we had identified adaptability as a core organizational value. And so this has been a year where practicing that value of adaptability has been really central. What are you excited about when you think about the idea of who we serve right now? I want to step back far enough that it is apparent to your listeners what the real challenge is that our organization faces when we think about audience and who we serve. So it's important for us as an institution to recognize that the Old State House and Old South Meeting House were preserved when other sites weren't for very particular reasons. And they were preserved at a particular moment in the history of our country and in Boston that was bound up with mass immigration in the 19th century and industrialization and the concerns of Boston's elite that they were losing their power and their control over life in the Commonwealth. And in some ways, I think we need to just acknowledge that the old state house and old South meeting house were preserved as vehicles for telling a story about who mattered and for reinforcing privilege. And while the organizations by the time that the merger happened were in no ways in no way committed to the idea of reproducing privilege in that way, one of the challenges we face is the legacy of that past. So I believe deeply that the the story of we the people belongs to us all. And what we want to do is to retell the story of the founding era and of the subsequent social justice movements that are have always been in dialogue with what the founding era gave us in a way that reinforces that this is ongoing work, that the work of making a more perfect union is unfinished, and that our history is an active resource for doing that work today. So what I'm excited about is engaging a more diverse audience, is 
helping people who might not have felt like the story of these buildings is their story too, to see those connections and to feel inspired by those connections and then feel empowered to take the story of the buildings and turn it into something that is authentically relevant to the concerns that they're grappling with today. So, you know, just one example of what that looks like, you know, we commissioned a small play about Crispus Attucks on the theory that it was going to be a play that would put addicts in dialogue with a subsequent generation of activists in Boston. We commissioned an African-American playwright here in the Boston area, Miranda Adekoche, to write the play, and she found a different story. And the play that she's been writing has been very much a story that centers addicts as a person and what it was like to be that person. And the play is so much in dialogue with the Black Lives conversation that we're having today. And yet Miranda's found Addicts' mixed African-American and Native American ancestry to be exceedingly complex and has found herself in dialogue with Native communities across Southern New England as she's tried to unravel the story. And she is so excited about this process of discovery and so excited to share it with others. What is the complex world in colonial America that addicts belonged to? What were the freedom struggles that were alive at the moment that he died? You know, not just the revolution, but the struggle against slavery. And we've tried really hard to include artists and activists and community members in those conversations. I love that. What a great place to kind of wrap up. I think this idea of um, grappling with the complexities of it all feels very timely and also a way that people who may not be as passionate about historic sites or historic houses, it really gives you a window into how impactful and powerful engaging with these physical spaces can be and what what sorts of exciting paths of inquiry can kind of come out of engaging with them. So Nat, thank you so much for being part of this. I really appreciate the the time of, uh, you know, talking through some of these issues. I can tell that, um, you know, you're really committed to the organization and I'm excited to see where things go in the next couple of years following this merger. So thank you for, for spending the time with me. Well, thanks everyone for listening. And if you're new to Leading for a Legacy, please subscribe or like the episode and forward this to a friend. If you have someone you're working with who you think might find value in what we're talking about, we'd love to get a bigger community going. You can also find us on Facebook. There's a Leading for a Legacy Facebook page. And I would love any suggestions for people you think we should talk to in this first season or going forward or topics that you want to cover. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.